Hebrews chapter 11, that's where we're going to pick up from tonight. We're going to continue on the journey of faith. We stopped at um, the immediate or the first three generations after Abraham. We saw how Abraham's calling was generational and it went all the way down to Joseph. And before Joseph died, he prophesied and said that his bones should be taken with him when Israel was leaving Egypt. And the reason why he was able to do that was because he was holding on to the promise of God, right, to the initial calling that God had given to Abraham, which was the promise of a land. That was the first object of the calling of Abraham. That context is necessary as we go into um, the verses ahead of us. What we're going to be looking at is um, what I may tag winning by faith, because we're going to see great feats and maybe perhaps even some feats that you may not consider great but the scripture considers great that were wrath because of faith and before we go into that it's important for me to just reiterate um, what we've said the golden principle of faith is i don't know if you remember what the golden principle of faith is it's found in verse 6 of hebrews chapter 11 and it is that he that comes to god must believe that he is. So God does not make the assumption that everyone who comes to him believes. But he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So the golden principle of faith is that anyone who would operate by faith would have to believe in the fidelity of God, like we said last week. And by the fidelity of God, we mean the character of God, the nature of God. That he is a God who does not turn back on his promise. That if he said something, he's going to do it. But you also have to believe in the ability of God. That not only did God say this, but he has the power to bring it to pass in my life. Right? And so the question there is, why is believing necessary in dealing with God? Why is believing necessary? Maybe I should ask us this question to get us started. Right, The golden principle of faith. Never forget, this is where the anchor of our discussions tonight will lie. Because you're going to see people whose perseverance and whose endurance at some point didn't make sense. But the Bible says that he that comes to God must believe. Why is believing necessary? I believe we've touched on this a few times in the past, in our previous chapters. Perhaps even at the retreat that we had earlier in the year. But why is believing necessary? Can God not do what he wants to do without your faith? That's essentially the same question. Can he not? Like he needs man to partner with him. Yeah, he needs a man to partner with him. Yeah, that's a simple way to put it, right? That God has determined that he, he, he he's not going to move on the earth except there is a man on the earth, a woman on the earth who believes in him. It's as though believing creates a premise, almost like a legal premise or, or um, an authoritative premise for the power of God to come into the earth. You know, the Bible tells us about Jesus that when he came and he was doing miracles, many people wanted to be his friends. You know, many people, people wanted to make him the king. But the Bible says he did not commit himself to any man, right? Because he knew what was a man. So Jesus was under no illusions that the heart of man is desperately wicked. And he was not quick to, to flatter any man, 
right? Or to pour praises on any man. But there was one thing that Jesus praised men for. doesn't matter if they were disciples or if they were Jews or if they were Gentiles. The one thing that Jesus praised every man for was for their faith. That faith is the basis of redemption. Faith is the basis upon which God can work post the fall. And so that's the first reason why believing is necessary. But you see, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 implicitly um, contains another reason why believing is necessary. It says that believing is necessary because you need to make some upfront investments. If you're going to walk by faith, if you're going to trust God, that, uh, that activity requires some upfront investments. And it's an investment of diligence. And that investment of diligence requires faith upfront. Not only does it require faith upfront, which we have seen in the previous verses that we've read, it also requires some more investments further down the line, and that's the investment of patience and perseverance. So that's why you must believe. It's just like if you want to, um, I don't know, do a business or invest in something, right? You need to have some faith in what you're investing in for you to make the upfront deposit, right? And the upfront deposit is not everything that you're going to put into the scheme, but there needs to be faith. There needs to be a belief that what I'm about to invest in, it's going to work so that I can make that initial investment. So anybody who comes to God needs, needs to believe because coming to God will require you making some investment. You will need to trust. You will need to reject certain things, alternative solutions, just because you came to God. You will need to despise the threats of men just because you came to God. You will need to despise the shame. Those are upfront investments. You will need to forsake worldly pleasures. You may need to embrace affliction. right? You may need to maintain certain feasts of the Lord. You might need to <laughs> attempt things that you never imagined that you could attempt just because you came to the Lord. So there's an upfront investment that God is saying that if you can trust me with this capital, then you're going to see more. But there's also an investment that needs to come down the road. And that's the investment of perseverance. And so that's what I want us, that's the background I want us to have. The background of the golden principle of faith that God cannot work on the earth. God cannot work in a family. God cannot work in a business, in a company, in a nation, unless there are people who believe. And so the crux of the labor of the writer in these verses is to get his readers, is to get you and I to believe. And that's my prayer, that we will believe God so much that we will ask him to trust us with faith projects. Okay, projects that will birth great testimonies. Um, so let's get started then from verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 11 to verse 31. Can you read for us, Stephanie? By faith, Moses when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. But Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Esteeming the reproach of Christ 
greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians, attempting to do so, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the hallowed Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Thank you very much, Stephanie. So off the bat here, I don't know if you noticed that this is a continuation of the call of Abraham, right? Remember we said that faith is generational. God came to a man and God began to speak about a land. God began to speak about a promise. God began to speak about blessing. But we did say that what began with Abraham didn't actually begin with him. That right from the time that Adam fell in the Garden of Eden, God began to speak about a seed. And that seed was going to be the basis upon which God was going to restore relationship between himself and man, right? It was going to be the basis upon which Eden, the sphere of, of, of fellowship where God created man to dwell, was going to be restored to mankind. And we said that in promising Abraham a land, God was using that as a symbolic expression of redemption, right? Of the redemption of man to the place where man fellowships with God. So remember that the object we are looking at here is the land. And we saw the fate, the fate of um, Abraham in passing down that blessing to Isaac, Isaac down to Jacob, Jacob down to Joseph. And Joseph didn't have anyone to pass down the blessing to directly. So he prophesied that this is not the end of your journey. God promised something. And so when, when the day comes, when you begin to exit Egypt, remember my bones and let it, be, let it be the token I live on the earth that I believe the promise of God. And we use, all of, we use that journey right, to highlight that the journey of faith begins with a calling. And that the reason you are in faith today, the reason you are a believer today is because you were called. You were called before time began. That calling found expression in time. You were called to inherit a land. Now, that land in the broader Christian context is Christ, right? You were called to, to partake of Christ, to be included in him. But we did say that in Christ, there's an inheritance that is specific for you, that is laid down for you, that God rejoices at every time he thinks about it. And that if your faith works, it is because of the calling. So that if you want your faith to work, you need to apply your faith in the direction of the calling. It's just like Hannah, for example. The Bible says that the Lord shut her womb. You know, that doesn't fit into our regular... I know that this looks like we're going off tangent, but we're not. But God shutting someone's womb doesn't sound like our regular theology, right? But that's what it says. We don't have time to unpack it. But Hannah didn't have a child, but her fellow wife, Penina, had seven, right? Or more, I don't know. And then she began to use that to make fun of Hannah. 
And then Hannah went to Shiloh year after year with her husband and she was petitioning the Lord, I need a son. You know, Hannah's, Hannah's pilgrimage, Hannah's expression of faith, if you like, continued until the day she realized that, wait a second, it's not really about me. God also needs a son. <laughs> and maybe the reason why my womb was closed is so that the first child that will come from this womb will be dedicated to the Lord. And then it is then that her spiritual senses opened up and she began to see that that the, that the lineage of Eli had been deposed and God was seeking a prophet that will anoint the first king of Israel. And so she, she made that covenant. When she applied faith in the area of the will of God or in the area of calling, if you like, there was an immediate response. Right. So that's what's going on here, that the same calling that Abraham received is being traced by the writer of Hebrews. So he's tracing now after Joseph their journey away from Egypt. Verse 23 says that by faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's command. My question is, what is the act of faith here? Based on what we have said about believing, right, and the upfront investment of believing, what is the act of faith that happened that Moses' parents displayed in the birth of Moses? What do you think? The, the fact that he hid him. Yes, maybe many people hid their children, right? They were not afraid of the king's command. Exactly. So this is what we said at the beginning, right? That your faith is going to demand upfront investment, which is why you need to come believing. Anything that affects your believing is not a good thing because it affects your ability to deal with God, to, to, to partner with God, to birth his will upon the face of the earth. So the investment they had to make was that they had to despise the, the threats of Pharaoh, right? They had to let go of fear. So it's just like if God tells you to go and pray for somebody, <laughs> you know, you might need to make this upfront investment. You might need to lose fear. You might need to drop it aside. And that's, that may be the only investment that God requires of you for his hand to move. So that was their own expression of faith. That even though there was a threat on ground, even though there was something that was supposed to make them afraid, their believing led them to despise that fear because he was not of God. And then verse 24 says that Moses eventually came of age and he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. So the next thing that the calling did in the life of Moses was that he refused another calling. Your hand is up, Stephanie. Sorry, with regards to this part of um, fear, as in um, they were not afraid, right? It, it, I've been hearing people say things like, even if you're afraid, do it being afraid. So when you do an action, perform an action that is in line with the calling, but then you're still afraid, that, is that faith? Because I reckon... Moses' parents were still afraid that he was going to die. What do you think? Well, the object of the fear was the king, right? Not whether he was mm -hmm. going to die or not. The object of the fear was the king's command. And whether or not 
fear was in their hearts. I mean, obviously, anybody who's doing this is taking a risk, right? It's very likely mm-hmm. that the king will find out and it will not end well for you. Mm. But their faith was displayed in the fact that despite the fear, in the midst of the fear, so that's how you can interpret we're not afraid. We're not afraid doesn't mean <laughs> there was no ounce of fear in practice. Okay, okay. It just means that they despise the fear. And I'm saying that okay. if you're going to walk by faith, you're going to need to despise. There are many things you need to despise. Shame is one of them. Hmm. But one of them is fear. Okay. And it's my hope that God will help us lose the fear that keeps us from true faith. Amen. Amen. Okay. So these are not the regular expressions of faith that we see. That my faith means that I despise fear. Moses' faith means that he refused a calling. He refused a name. He refused a title. Because he was holding on to God's vision. Now that vision may not have looked better, right, than um, what he was currently in. I mean, this was, Egypt was arguably the world power of the day. So you can say that he was in the apex of the world, not just the apex of Jewish society, but the apex of the world. But he refused the calling because there was something else that was rumbling on his heart. I don't know what name that people want to give you, right? I don't know what name that circumstances want to give you, but you can refuse it. You know, if you're trusting God for a miracle as an upfront investment, you can refuse certain names. You can refuse certain doctor's reports. You can refuse certain tags as an upfront investment. So he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, which would have gotten him several privileges, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. Now, Verse 25 cannot be understood except if you read verse 26. Verse 26 says, esteeming, esteeming or accounting the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. So just in case you're wondering, how can a man right, um, choose affliction? against the pleasures of sin. Because sometimes if you read these um, heroes, it looks like what they did was impossible for you and I. I don't know if, if you feel that way. Because I don't know if you honestly ask yourself, let me be honest, if I was Joseph, <laughs> if I was Joseph, what would I have done? And it's possible that as you're thinking about it, you begin to even doubt your faith. But you see, Moses had an estimation system. And this is an estimation system that anyone who would walk by faith will need to have. The Bible says that he esteemed the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. And what is the reward? The reward, like we said, is the glory of God. Of course, in this context, the reward was that he was going to be the deliverer of of, um, Israel and he was going to be the one to lead them into the land of promise. But all of that was to the glory of God. So anybody who walk by faith will need to have we need to recalibrate their estimation system. What do you consider valuable? You know, it's better that I, I die trusting God than for my testimony to be that I lost heart. 
You know, Jesus has reproaches. I hope you know. And that's what um, Hebrews chapter 13, right, would, would, would charge us to do when we get there, hopefully in two weeks' time. Right? That following Christ has some reproaches because for a long time it might look like your faith is worthless. It might look like your faith is unreasonable. In fact, for many of these people, it might actually look like your faith did not produce what it was supposed to produce. So now this is the further downward investment, the investment of perseverance. But if you're going to go that far in your faith, you, you, you need to have a different system of estimation. The Bible says that by faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Remember we said last week that the spirit of faith is faithfulness. That the generational vision that God cast in our hearts, the, the generational calling for which God separated you, planted you in a family, planted you in a city at a specific time. You know, there, there are many things that may be more exciting to you in the moment than that calling, right? But the spirit of faith is faithfulness. And we said that the way God provokes faithfulness is that he comes and gives us a vision nobody can walk by faith to this extent where they forsake things where they suffer affliction who does not capture that vision jesus actually does not work with anybody who cannot see because if the nature of god is that he requires partnership of men then it's the case that the nature of god is that he's also prophetic right that's what we said in Hebrews chapter 1 that God who at sundry times and in various ways spoke to us by the prophets has in this last day spoken to us by the son that God communicates the things he wants to do ahead of time before he does it so that anyone who lays hold by faith can partner with him to accomplish those things. So one of the key things that God does for us is that he gives us a vision. That vision can come while you are reading the scriptures, which is why reading the scriptures is a necessary discipline for anybody who will continue by faith. Reading the scriptures, and as you are reading them, something beyond the letters jumps into your spirit, and God casts a vision for your family in front of your face. God casts a vision for your city in front of your face. God casts a vision for your business, for your company in front of your face. That's God's own part in the partnership. That, that's his faithfulness. It could be that you are praying and every time you pray, he casts that vision. He casts that impression. He brings that anointing. That's his own part in, in the faithfulness equation. And like we said last week, your own part is to lay hold on the fidelity and the ability of God. The Bible says that by faith, he forsook Egypt. And we see the issue of fear here again. That he was able to despise the wrath of the king. He endured, his faith endured because he saw him who is invisible. You know, the version of faith that teaches us that faith is a name and claim affair, that if you can imagine it, you can, you can have it, right? And the version of faith that teaches us that um, the proof of faith is, is found in material possession. What it is trying to do or what Satan is trying to do, actually, is that he's trying to affect your estimation system. He's trying to make you esteem certain things beyond what they should be. 
And it may not even be from that front. It could be that the enemy would come with fear. You know that if you are in the West or in like, practically any country, right? There is a heightened fear of an economic recession. You know? There's, there's, it, it's everywhere on the news. Companies are firing people. Even the tech industry that was supposed to be resilient to these kind of things is actually the one leading, leading the charge in, in dropping people, in firing people. It's possible that Satan can come and give you an estimation system and begin to make it look like in, in, in your system of estimation, how much you have in your bank account is what determines your survival. That how stable your company is is what determines your future. But everybody who walk by faith, we need to we need to see from a different vista. We need to estimate things differently. Okay, verse twenty eight says that by faith he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. So his faith led him to a certain practice. Now the Passover is synonymous in the new covenant to the communion, right? And we said that the communion, Jesus asked us to do it as often as we do, that the communion is beyond eating bread and drinking wine. The, the communion is everything that takes advantage, right, of the suffering of Jesus, of his blood poured out and of his body, which is bread for us. And the first and primal and foremost activity that takes advantage of the sufferings of Christ is prayer. And Jesus says, do it as often as you do. Do it in remembrance of me. By faith, he kept the Passover. So it means that there is a promise of God. You have done everything that you know to do. <laughs> but, it, but, the, but the deliverance has not yet manifested, for example. The breakthrough has not yet come. But God wants you to keep at your priesthood. To keep at it by faith, he kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood. You know that if the firstborn of Israel was destroyed by the angel of death, that would have compromised the promise of God, because God had promised Abraham that in your seed, in your seed, and we know that the seed of Abraham eventually is, was or is Christ and not Isaac, but. Christ physically descended from Abraham also, in that sense. And so because of that promise, he kept the Passover. Verse 29 says that by faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, whereas the Egyptians attempting to do so were drowned. So nobody in their normal sense is going to step into the Red Sea. The Red Sea, hmm, the Red sea was not parted before they came to it. They had to step into it by faith. Moses had to lift up his hand by faith before it, before it parted. And you see, even after it, it parted, you know, the way these miracles happen are not as stupendous as you might think. Yes, sometimes God can suspend the laws of nature, but many times he can actually just fast forward the laws of nature and use the laws of nature, right, to accomplish a miracle. So even though the Red Sea was parted, the Red Sea is not, it's very long. It's not the kind of thing you want to be trapped in the middle of it <laughs> and be asking yourself, what if the wind that's parted the sea, what if it just blows now? So even though the sea is parted, 
you still have to step in by faith. This is symbolic of the journeys of faith, the acts of faith that God calls us to step into, those big feats that by yourself you won't have gone into, but just because you have come to God and you're bringing that down payment of, of believing, you step into those things. I can tell you, for example, that marriage doesn't matter who you are or what you are. <laughs> Every act of marriage is a, it's an act of faith. It's like crossing the Red Sea because you are committing for the better part of 50 to 70 years. There is no data science model that can help you, <laughs> that can help you investigate how that arrangement will end. So it doesn't matter how many prophetic words you got about the marriage. When you're about to do it, you're going to realize that it's going to be an act of faith. And there are many things that will try to make you not do it. But at some point, you need to take that step. That's just an example. The Bible says that by, the wall, by, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. This is also another significant act of faith. This significant act of faith is more territorial. That in your faith, depending on where you are in your faith with God, a time will come when he will give you a territorial project. A project that can literally obliterate you if it does not go right. And such projects will be executed by faith. But the most interesting one to me is verse 31. By faith, the hallowed Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Remember what we said about the journey of faith, that the journey of faith begins with a calling, not with any goodness of any of us, but with God's calling. God comes in his sovereignty and he places a call on your life. And it's on account of that calling that you can exercise faith. And that's what happened. Because if you if you are to go through the land of Canaan and choose who will be spared when Israel takes over the land, you will probably not choose Rahab. But in the sovereignty of God, he chose her. And you see, the length and breadth of her calling was just to receive the spies with peace. That was all her calling was. And because she responded to that calling, she was faithful to it. The Bible says that she did not perish. And this did not perish is a physical did not perish. But it also connotes that anyone who responds to the call of God will also not perish. So that's the journey of faith that has been traced for us. That eventually, this is where the promise of the land was fulfilled. Because as we read about the heroes, the acts, the heroic acts of faith, these are acts of faith that happened in the land. But for every step of the way into that land, there needed to be expressions of faith. Just the same way that you're born again and you're in Christ. And we're saying to you that there is provision for you in Christ. There's a family for you in Christ. There's a marriage for you in Christ. There's a destiny for you in Christ. There's, there, are, there are many things for you in Christ. There are going to be faith projects on the way. right? And your faith will have to learn how to estimate things, how to reject things, how to receive things, how to, how to move not with the fear of men, but with the fear of God. Okay? Do you have any thoughts so far? Any questions? Anything on your mind? 
I'm just concerned about this rehab. I mean, she's still called a harlot, you know? Yes, harlot is her past tense, not, <laughs> not her present know, tense like, reality. Why did it still have to come out in the New Testament that, you know, she was a harlot? It's a, it's a Jewish thing, right? Because, like, there are many reasons why this can be the case. Um, one of them is that there are many people called Rahab, obviously. And okay. this, this is a differentiator. Just like whenever Jesus healed people, they still maintained <laughs> the name of their sickness. Like the woman healed with the issue of blood. Or Mary of Bethany, from whom he cast out seven demons, I think. Right? Because if you want to count the number of Marys, um, we, you may need to qualify the Mary you're referring to. So this is just a style of writing. So at this point, she was no longer a harlot. But this is to say that the calling is not based on merit. He said last week that mm. the, God is not um, concerned too much with how he meets you when he calls you. So okay. your current estate is not an excuse, actually. The reason God is not so concerned is because there's a journey of faith. And we saw how Moses' journey led him to led him to reject things, despise things, until he became the man that could fit into his ordination. And that's the same. So she began as a harlot, but she didn't end like that. Okay. Okay. Thank you for yeah. that question. Any other thoughts? Okay. In the absence of none, can you read for us then? Stephanie from verse 32 to verse 40. And what more shall I say? For the for time, so I need to zoom. For time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouth of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of, of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still, others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sown in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Okay, thank you very much. So there's quite a bit to unpack here. The writer begins by saying in verse 32, and what more shall I say? So why does he say that? He's saying that I hope that by now I've been able to give you a clear definition of faith. That faith is based on the fidelity of God and on the ability of God. And that when God makes a promise, that promise is generational and God is faithful 
to see through that promise to the very end. And if only you can hold on to the promise, there's going to be a performance. Because what began with Abraham eventually ended with, with the conquest of Jericho. And so, he, it's like, and so the question is open. Are you going to trust the fidelity and the ability of God? Right? Are you going to lay hold on what only God can do? He says, for the time will fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and of Samuel and of the prophets. I want to ask us, of these um, six names, I mean, there are more than six because the prophets include everybody, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. But of the six mentioned here, which one does their faith stand out to you the most? What about their faith do you think makes um, what about their faith do you think places them in this hall of faith or in this hall of fame? I mean he lists some of the things they did, but I want us to reach into our memory of of what the record of these men that are listed here was. Which one stands out to you? And why? Um, yeah. Sorry? Samuel stands out to me. Samuel? Yes. Why? All the other ones, they just have commas in their name, in their lifestyle. But Samuel was the one that I feel fulfilled <laughs> everything to the T. Hmm. Okay. But Gideon also, but you know, after Gideon's um, mighty work and you know all that, he still went back to serving other gods Samson I don't even know why Samson's name is there I've been asking myself that question should Samson's name be in this hall of faith uh, and even David okay I'll just leave you to explain why these names are there so, so the one that, that sticks out to you is Samuel right because Samuel is the perfect one apparently right Exactly, yes. Okay. It seems like the most perfect amongst this, this crew. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Anybody else? Um, go direct in the chat, David. Why? Hey, I think right from the beginning, our JP Goliath and all of that. And they still went on to win lots of battles. Like, so many times David had to, like, David's faith was really outstanding because so many times he had to go back. Things you feel like you can't even enjoy it, but it still was able to overcome. So I think that's why it stands out for me. Okay. Is there any thread that you find that unites these characters as we go forward? Because, like Stephanie has pointed out correctly, some of them were actually cowardly when God met them, right? Gideon did not believe that he could confront the Midianites when God called him. In fact, because of his unbelief, God had to um, God had to ask him to hide himself somewhere so that he could hear what the armies were saying about him. And God came to him and said, go in this your strength. It's as though that in this matter of faith, it's not so much about the perfections of the character of the man. It's not so much about the qualifications of the character of the man. It's as though God's promise is so strong, so strong, 
that he's looking for a person who will believe him. Barak was the one who, um, who Deborah prophesied over, right? And said, hey, take 10,000 10, men and go um, and you're going to defeat. Um, I don't remember which particular army again. And he, he, he doubted. He said, I cannot go except if you go with me. So this was by no means um, a fearless man. But yet, the fact that he went. And you know, every battle that these, these men listed here were involved with were battles concerning the land, concerning the inheritance. There were battles concerning the promise of God. Right? Concerning that which God had spoken, concerning that which God had said. And God, despite their limitations, was willing to back them up if they stood with him in the calling. The reason Samson is, is listed here, because we know his story very well. The reason why Samson is listed here, right, is that we, we know his story. Um, he was not disciplined in his sexual desires, if you like. And so he eventually allowed himself to be taken advantage of by a woman. But you see, when he stood between those pillars, it was not about Samson. It was about the people of God. It was about the enemies of God. It was about the purpose of God for his people. It was about the anointing that had come upon him to be able to be a judge for his people. He had a destiny to destroy a certain quota of the enemies of God. And when he laid hold of that destiny and of that calling, there was a definite response from heaven. Or if we talk about Jephthah, remember that Jephthah was born to Gilead. I think that's Judges chapter 11. And he was the son of a harlot. And his brothers and his sisters, if you had sisters, rejected him from the house and said, we don't want you like you are the son of a harlot. And the Bible says that he went and joined himself to worthless men. So the man was on the path of worthlessness until a time came when the Ammonites began to threaten Gilead and say, hey, we want your land. And then they, they realized, oh, we need Jephthah. And they went and found Jephthah. And Jephthah came. Who was Jephthah to defeat the Ammonites? He stood on the promise. If you read, if you read his defense to the king of Ammon. He stood on the fact that it was the God of Israel that gave us this land. right? And because he gave us this land, he can actually back us up in battle. I don't know if you're seeing the pattern that is building up here. That if you think that these men were weak and imperfect, these are people that were hanging out with worthless men. I don't need to tell you about the story of David. right? Because his story is well documented. He was great but not perfect. But that God was willing to walk through them because of his calling, because of his purpose. And because at some point in their lives, they believed. Now look at some of the things that their faith accomplished. The Bible says that through faith, they subdued kingdoms. Now, subdued kingdoms is the language that is used for warfare. So their faith did not exempt them from spiritual warfare. Instead, their faith became the basis upon which they could fight successfully. Right? So that one of the things that faith comes to do in our lives is that it comes to give us the capacity to subdue and that God can subdue kingdoms under you 
if only you can believe him enough. You know, Satan can come and tell you that you need to be careful how you are praying because if you continue praying like this, bad things will happen to you. But that's not the testimony of faith. The testimony of faith is that through faith, they subdued kingdoms. A time will come when God will come and hand you a project and that project will be that let, let the testimony of, of your faith be that a kingdom is subdued. That one who wants to govern in wickedness is shut down. The Bible says that in, by faith they worked righteousness. The better translation of worked righteousness is that they enforced justice. So there are certain legal situations, whether they are physically you know, legal injustices, or they are spiritually legal injustices, as it were. The Bible says that by faith, they enforced the justice of God. That because I believe, I can stand and insist that the pattern of death must cease. I can stand by faith and insist that the pattern of oppression must cease. Out of weakness, they were made strong. So this is the story of those who were weak and became strong. And the prominent example of this is King Hezekiah. The man was about to die. And he, and through faith, he made petitions. And death became life for an extra 15 years. Of course, we know that these men made mistakes. And that's why the writer is going to tell us that they didn't really touch the reality. Because if you, if you, if you know about the judges, the judges ruled Israel at a time when there was no king. And the culture of the time was that everybody did what was right in their sight. So what happened is that the Spirit of the Lord will come upon someone. And by virtue of the fact that the Spirit of the Lord came upon them temporarily, they were able to do things that they were not able to naturally do. So Samson was not necessarily a physically impressive person, for example. It's just that when the Spirit of might came upon him, you couldn't recognize him. So these people only had occasional comings of the Spirit of God on them. And yet their, their faith produced all these wonderful things. The Bible says that they became valiant in battle. This is the story of Gideon. That the man went into battle with fear. He didn't know if he was going to win. He didn't know if he could trust God. But as he began to engage in the warfare, he became valiant. He found his strength that he did not know he had just because he stepped out in faith. And there are many anointings, friends, that will only be activated when you step out in faith. There are many things inside of you that would only be activated when you step out in faith. The Bible says that they turn to flight the armies of the aliens. The aliens there is not, <laughs> it's not extraterrestrial beings. The aliens is another word for the Gentiles in this context. Women received their dead raised to life again. Why did women receive their dead raised to life? Why did they receive their dead raised to life? From everything we've been saying. They had faith. Because they believed, right? Mm -hmm. That was all. That was all. And like we've said, believing is not a passive thing. It's not the kind of thing that you lie down on your bed and say, okay, I believe, let's see what will happen. Because the people who believed, they subdued kingdoms. They, 
They enforced justice because they believed. They obtained promises. Right? I didn't talk about quench the violence of fire, but you know that this is um, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Right? When the fire was heated seven times, it did not consume them. They escaped the edge of the sword. This is practically everybody who went into battle. And women received their dead raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings. I can read Jeremiah into this. Yes, of chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of which, of whom the world was not worthy. The reason they wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth, was not because they were wanderers. It's because the world was not worthy of them. The burden on their heart was superior to any pleasure that was in the environment. And so they refused the pleasures of the environment and decided to hold on to the promise of God. And the writer is saying that if you think that all of this is fantastic, the only thing that made all of it possible was that they believed. You know, I don't want to make this message complex. I don't want to use too many scriptures because it's not necessary. Right? The facts are staring us in the face. So the simple message is that they believed. And the question for us is, what will your faith produce? Right? What is that project? What's your own story in this in these few verses that we've read? When we come six months from now, what is the thing we can add to Hebrews chapter 11 and say, through faith, go that did X. Through faith, Terence obtained Y. You know, that's going to be the object of our prayer later. That the Lord will cast a burden on our hearts. That we will not just sit by and allow situations that God has empowered us to change. We will not just watch them deteriorate. But that our faith will come alive and will produce a testimony. Will produce a good report. Stephanie, your hand was up or is up. Yes, Joshua. It's just these people are like superheroes, you know, like X-Men in my heart. Because I'm trying to put myself in the shoes of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for instance. And I, I'm like, would I be able to stand, you know, the wrath of the king, first of all, then the fire being heated, and then the fire being heated seven times, you know, the first. And I'm like, what did they see? What kind? It just feels like madness, you know? What did they see that made them so convinced, so so yeah. confident, you know, in the face of death? Well, it the answer is, yeah, I, I, I totally understand what you're saying, right? Why is it that our faith doesn't seem so daring? Isn't it? The answer yes. of scripture is simply that they believed. Because we have made something light of believing. We have turned believing into a mere creed. And that's what the writer is pointing out here. That these people believed. 
You know, it's not, it's not everything that they believed. The object of their believing was that there's a God that appeared to our father Abraham and he gave him a promise. And that promise is true even in the face of fire. That promise is true even in the face of imprisonment. You know, in our case, Abraham is no longer our primary reference, right? Because the promise of the father or the promise of or the blessing of Abraham has been poured into Christ. So the object of our believing is that the Son of God came into the earth. It's not a fable. It's not a cunningly devised fable. It's not a, it's not a bedtime story. The Son of God came into the earth. He died, he was raised, and he sent down his Holy Spirit. And his Holy Spirit lives in my heart. And on account of those facts, everything is different. Everything is different. Me, who was no longer accepted, I'm now accepted. Satan has lost his claim upon my soul. There's a destiny for me to fulfill. And when I say destiny, I'm not saying that you need, you're going to stand one day with microphone to preach. I hope that's very clear to us by now. But there's a destiny for me. Okay. Anyway. The interesting part is that, as impressive as you think <laughs> that these feats are, the Bible says that, and all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith. So, the thing they obtained was just a good testimony. They did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect or complete apart from us. So, what is this promise that they did not receive? What is the better thing that we have? You see, this is a very sober scripture. That we can't even imagine ourselves doing the things they did. Like, let's, let's forget about the sufferings, you know. Because, to be fair, not, ev not all of us are called to suffer. To be, to be fair, most of us are in countries where we will probably never suffer like this for the gospel. So, at least let me clear your heart of that. Right? But how about the dead coming to life? How about, the, how about subduing kingdoms? How about enforcing justice? What is the promise? What is the, what is the better thing for us that they didn't have? The Holy Spirit. Can you build it out more? Can you like expand on it more? Um, I think that organic relationship with the Holy Spirit. Um, I mean, that's, that's the gift that the Lord promised and that Peter said has been fulfilled, the pouring out of the Spirit. That's just what came to my heart. Okay. What was the basis of the pouring out of the Spirit? In Peter's sermon. The basis of the pouring out of the Spirit was the exaltation of Jesus, right? So these people were seeking a king, the one that will rule in righteousness, the one that would destroy the Lord's enemies, right? They were seeking a city, a place where only the glory of God rests, a place where the righteousness of God is available without end, a place where they Peace of God dominates. 
a place beyond earth, a place where the joy of the Lord is like a spring that never runs dry. And none of it was possible until he ascended. When he ascended on high, the Bible says that he gave gifts unto men so that by receiving the Holy Spirit, you and I have received the agency of our riches in Christ. You know that the Holy Spirit is the only personality that is, in, that is both in heaven and in the earth at the same time. So that the one who believes and has the Holy Spirit has access to a resource base that's not natural. That in a time of recession, there is a resource base that you have access to. In a time of pain, there is a resource base that you have access to. In a time of war, there is a resource base that you have access to. That just in case you go to a family and you go to a territory and all you see is the desolations of Satan, that when you come into that place, you did not come alone. That when you go into your office, you are not going in alone. You are going in with the very riches of heaven backing you up. And the only thing that will determine how much you will profit from that arrangement is do you believe? Do you believe? You know, I was asking myself, why is it that we don't believe? Because that's just a fact, we don't believe actually. Why is it that we don't believe? And I realized that one of it, or the, one of the main reasons, is because we don't have a bird. You know, the version of faith that we have been taught um, is a version that is devoid of the burden that is on the heart of God. And that's why, like most of us, cannot actually believe God for big things. That my hands will raise the dead. That my hands will heal the sick. Because we, we have not seen God's big picture. We have not seen our lives from the perspective of the calling. That there is a cloud of witnesses that our life is only continuing their journey. That everything they did has become a reference, a resource that we can tap into, that we can draw upon to fulfill our destiny. That's why we cried last week. And we said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. God needs to help our unbelief, friends. God needs to help our unbelief. Because there are faith projects that I've seen in my spirit this year that God wants to put in our hands. And he's trusting that we can prosecute the glory of his name. To close, we're going to read the first two verses of chapter 12 because this is what puts it, ties it all up together. Can you read for us, Stephanie? Therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every and everything which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the route before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Okay, thank you. There are a few times we need to define that. Therefore, we also, we also, 
we are continuing something that began before us. We also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. What is a weight? And the second question is, and the sin which so easily ensnares us. What is the sin? Can someone help us? What do you think? I don't know about the weight part, but the same one I could say our lusts. Okay. Okay. Desires, cravings. I, I'm just, I'm just asking. It's a very specific thing. It's the sin. I didn't notice the sin. Unbelief. Unbelief, exactly. You know, that's what he has been wrestling with with these Jews in this letter. Right? That their history is littered with people who did not believe, but it's also littered with people who believed, and their outcome was clear to see. That unbelief takes various forms, but it begins with drifting. And you see, a weight is whatever it is that makes us drift. You know, the intensity of God in your spirit begins to wane when you engage in that thing. You cannot... You cannot biblically or morally or theologically classify it as a sin, but the intensity of your believing begins to wane because of that. In fact, the very first thing that I think a weight is, is that a weight is certain thought patterns. Now, if I tell you now, let's go for evangelism on the streets and preach, the, the greatest hindrance to that, to that outing is your mind. There are certain weights in your mind that will need to be cast down by nobody else but you before you can even arrive at the place where you are set to go and with excitement share the good news of Jesus on the streets. So the weight in the context of an athlete is everything that slows you down. Everything that's a product of a lack of discipline. And you know, good things, good things can become a weight. Food can become a weight for a Christian. And that's why if a Christian is going, to be, is going to be healthy, the Christian needs to have a regular fasting schedule. doesn't matter if you're going to preach or not. It's not, that, it's not that something is wrong with you or that you have a big prayer point that your own is special. No. It's just the way to be healthy. Jesus says that when the bridegroom is taken from them, they will need to fast. Right. Jesus says that they are certain that cannot go out except by fasting and by prayer. And so when a believer arrives at a place where they cannot even fast to save their life, it has become a weight. Of course, I'm not talking about situations that are unavoidable because I hope you know that physically, some people add weight because of medical conditions. It's not anything that is a lack of discipline, right? But he's talking about anything that you can lay aside. It's possible that my phone, your phone, has become a weight. Because of it, we cannot spend time in the Word of God. Because of it, we cannot spend time in prayer. Because of it, we are beginning to drift. Spending time on books, spending time on videos, spending time on everything that is not contributing to the faith that is supposed to power the manifestations of God. 
All of it is a weight. It's a weight. It's the thing that diminishes your, your, your believing. You need to identify them and you need to lay them aside. And when it comes to the sin, so the, generically, the sin here is unbelief. That unbelief is going to hinder me. Unbelief is going to hinder you. Just in case you find a place, you arrive at a place where you, where you are no longer praying, right? Where you are no longer hungry and testing after the Lord. The diagnosis is unbelief. It's the sin that so easily ensnares us. It's the sin that he has been dealing with all through this book. That God is anxious. Well, not anxious in a negative way. God is looking forward to a people who can believe him. But you see, the sin here is also idiosyncratic. That in my life, in your life, you must identify the thing that is ensnaring me. What is it that, that just desaturates my soul? That is a sin. Yes, each believer needs to identify it. And needs to lay it aside by the grace of God. Because it's possible that that sin may have so encircled you that you have even arrived at the place where you don't believe that there's a life outside of this circle. Friends, what God is asking us to do tonight is to believe. So, believing is the investment, the upfront investment that we must make. And then the downward further investment is the investment of endurance. The race here has the idea of, part, of particularity. That there's a particular race that is, that is laid out for you, that is set for you to run. And because of the nature of faith, you're going to need to run it with endurance. And if you're going to need to run it with endurance, if you're going to successfully run with endurance, you have to keep the vision of Jesus before us. Jesus is the great picture that the writer has presented to us all through the book. He describes him as the one who pioneered our faith and as the one who perfects it, who brings it to its completion. The Bible says that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. This activity of despising that we talked about, he also practiced it. He's, he's, he's a worthy example for us. Despising the shame. And because of that, he sat down at the right hand of God. You know, when I was thinking about what's his best scripture that highlights this um, endurance of Jesus, the, the best one I found was Luke chapter 9, verse 51. The Bible says, Now it came to pass, when the time had come for him to be received up, that he steadfastly set his face to go towards Jerusalem. You know, a time comes when you need to steadfastly set your face with determination. See, Jesus knew that there was going to be pain in Jerusalem. And he also knew that there will be distractions along the way. There will be people who don't want him to end up in Jerusalem. Yet, he, he, he moved with certainty. He moved with joy. Because even though pain was in the pathway, it was not the end of the road. Even though pain was in the picture, it was not the end of the story. The Bible says that for the joy that was ahead of him, he endured. Set my face like a flint, O God. 
set my face steadfastly. That the calling which you've called me, for which you separated me, for which you planted me, for which you saved me, for which you did mighty miracles in my life, for which you delivered me, for which you promoted me, for which you increased me, that that calling will not suffer. That I will set my face steadfastly and that my life will fulfill the counsel of the Lord. Friends, the prayer point tonight is simple. We want to ask God to help us believe again. You know, believing is not something that you can manufacture by yourself. The Bible says that faith is a substance of things hoped for. That substance comes by fellowshipping with God. You know, you can because it's possible to believe the wrong thing, believe for the wrong thing. But when God is faithful to cast that picture and tell you, do you know that your brother doesn't have to die? He just whispers it in your head. Do you know that your brother does not have to die? It becomes a project. Say, Lord, I've, 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 I've read about these heroes of faith, how they receive their dead back to life. And I want my story, the story that you're writing, to be part of it. What will become of your faith? What will become of your believing? What will become of my believing? I'm trusting God that in this year we'll have testimonies, not of any greatness that is in us, but testimonies of our believing that God said to me, go and do this, go and do that. And I believed. I believed. I believed enough to tarry with it in prayer. I believed enough to obey that word. I believed enough to arrange my life around that word. I believed. Jesus said to Martha, Have I not told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? Yes. And I pray that we will see the glory of God. Yes. And we will have testimonies of believing. Testimonies of believing in this year. In the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.